Good morning and thank you again uh, for being here. Uh, I'm glad to be here and I'm thankful for this opportunity. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Tolu, Tolu Dulesi. I, I like to introduce myself uh, as Tolu a recovering sinner, <laughs> and to know that we are all in this process of growth and becoming more Christ-like. Uh, so the passage today is First Samuel chapter 13. Uh, we will be studying God's Word together. And um, the, the title of the sermon is Unbelief, uh, the Undoing of a King and Its People. Uh, it's kind of long, but you, you get the idea. So First Samuel chapter 13, um, I would read it throughout. Um, it's a little bit long, so please just bear with me. Um, so First Samuel chapter 13, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded, what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam towards the wilderness. 
Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Let's say a quick prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would show us what's in your word and speak to our hearts, that you help us see your love for us your deliberate hand that works salvation for us and so that we will trust you more so that we will rely more on you so that our identity will be found in you Uh, would you please god come open our eyes to understand your word may your words be heard god and not mine may you be glorified in all of this in jesus name amen amen so again uh I wanted to do a quick recap of the story so far uh, in First Samuel, uh, the book of First Samuel, and then we'll jump into chapter 13 to see what we have there. Uh, so in the last couple of chapters of First Samuel, uh, Israel had basically rejected God as king and said to um, Samuel that they wanted to have a king that would go out before them and fight their battles. Uh, essentially, they were sort of tired of the way God was doing things. Uh, they wanted to be like other nations. You see, the, the issue there wasn't that they wanted a king. It was that they wanted to be like other nations, and they rejected God in doing so. Now, God agrees to their desire and basically shows Samuel who would be king, uh, which is Saul. So Saul was chosen as king. Uh, you had some fellows that were sort of dissenting and thinking to themselves, can Saul really save us? And then there's this attack from the Ammonites, Nahash the Ammonite from the east, uh, God wins uh, that battle for them through uh, uh, Saul. And Saul actually has an opportunity to kill those who questioned him, but he shows mercy right? in, in that sense. And then Samuel basically brings all of them to Gilgal. He enacts a covenant between God, king, and people. And basically, that's where we, we, we also find the story. Uh, and so one of the things I want us to think about as we get into chapter 13 is this. See, just as Israel rejected God and rejected the ways of God and the reign of God, uh, so also we do that, right? And we do that in a number of ways. And some questions that might help us think of those uh, is what I want you to hold in hand as we study this. So a question could be, you know, where do I put my trust in nowadays? What do I think about that gives me this settledness, this calmness, this sense of everything is okay and all right? What is that thing apart from God that I truly rely on? And then another question that we will come to is this, like, what or where is my identity anchored? How do I truly define myself? Not what I say but what is shown through the pattern of my actions, the repeated pattern of my actions, where do I anchor my identity? So like we said, the, the text is First Samuel chapter 13, and um, I have about five observations that we'll be going through. 
and we'll sort of walk through that as we go through the scripture. And so the first observation there is the undoing of a king. Uh, so at the beginning of First Samuel 13, I think uh, scripture reads like Saul had been one year old or something like that, and he reigned in Israel for two years. So obviously that's not true. Um, there's some corruption of the original text where some of the numbers are dropped off, and I just wanted to call that out. Um, that won't really impact what we are going to study today. It's just that that first verse sort of reads funny when you say Saul had been one year old. Right. There are a couple of theories about what's actually going on, but I don't think it's really pertinent to what we'll study. So I'll just keep over that. But to get into the story, I wanted to sort of lay some groundwork so we understand what's going on and what might have gone into the formation of Saul and some of the choices he would make later on. Uh, so one of the things I, I want you to hold in hand is that um, even though Israel had rejected God, God still sees Israel as his own, right? So God, even though he's going to give them a king they've asked for, he wants to help set up that process so that they still keep following him and they are in right standing. And so we have the, uh, the covenant that Samuel enacted with, between God, king, and people in First Samuel 12. And some of the key things I want to pull out of that is this. Israel's kings, as opposed to other kings of other nations, are supposed to be like vice regents or princes ruling under the authority of God. So in a sense, they are supposed to be like under shepherds. Right? So God is still truly the king, and they are subject to the will and the word of God. Right? So the king of other nations could do as they wanted. Right? They, some of them essentially thought of themselves as gods. But Israel's king was not to be that way. In addition, Israel's king, just like everybody else, was subject to the same covenant to following God's word and God's principles. And, and, and so, again, as we look into this text, right, I want to set that context so that you know what Israel's kings are supposed to do. And then we have this problem of the Philistines that, that is ongoing. So if you actually go back to 1 Samuel 9, when God des- decided or agreed to give them a king, uh, one of the purposes was that the king would actually liberate them from the problem of the Philistines. And so we know the Philistines are an issue. And Saul at his anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 10 was given two instructions by, by Samuel, which was one, take note of the Philistine outpost in Gibeah of Benjamin, which is essentially his homeland. Right? That's basically his homeland. And it feels like Samuel was urging him to do something about that. Because Samuel said, you know, once you see all these other things, uh, God is with you, go and do whatever your hand finds to do. And then the second uh, instruction was for uh, a soul to wait for Samuel in Gilgal. Then Samuel would come and tell him what to do. So now we get to the man himself, Saul, uh, the man that is the first king here in Israel. And so when we first sort of come upon him in this story, he's meeting Samuel looking for his father's donkeys, right? And Samuel essentially honors him and basically talks to him about him being the prince in Israel. And we see what might be humility in him where he's basically saying, you know, why me? Who am I amongst my father's house? Why, why are you choosing me uh, in that sense? But maybe as we get to know Saul later on, maybe what we thought was humility was actually something else. Uh, b- because what we would see is that Samuel anointed him, and then there is this casting of lots to pick the king. Now, Saul already knows he's going to be king. Uh, but rather than be there, he goes to hide. And he's basically hiding amongst the baggage. And so they're looking for him. 
right? And then even after he's selected, you have some people saying, who really is this guy? Can he really save us, right? And so you have those things going on. And then when the attack from the east came, basically Nahash, the Ammonites, wanting to subdue uh, the people of Israel, they, they actually bring the news to his hometown, but nobody actually goes to Saul. So it's almost like they bring the news, they tell everybody, people are sort of like wailing and like in despair, but nobody actually goes to the one that is anointed to be king, which again is weird. So maybe again it's just that they don't really have much faith in him in that sense. Now, so maybe, and this is just a maybe, maybe all of this is creating and solve this need for acceptance, this wanting to prove that he truly can be this person. Maybe. But it's curious to see all these things going on and the fact that they're not really looking to him uh, as their king. So I say all of this to, in talking about Saul because I want us to identify with him and to ask ourselves the questions, you know, where do I look for acknowledgement or for approval? Right? Whose approval am I truly craving? Again, not what we say, but the pattern of our actions and how we live. Right? And, and again, whose rejection do I fear so much? Like, which crowd do I want to be a part of so much that leads me to compromise on things that I know are right in God? We talked about identity. I asked that question before in terms of where is my identity anchored? And identity is such a complex thing. It's usually fluid. It's usually not anchored just in one thing. Uh, it's usually anchored in a couple of things, and, and it changes. Uh, but there are maybe three main broad categories of what we usually anchor our identity into. Uh, one is this idea of I am what I have or possess or have amassed. Right? And, and this usually is due to our craving for, it could be wealth, comfort, acceptance, being known, recognition, whatever the case may be. But that's one broad category. Uh, another broad category is that I am what people say about me. Right? And, and this comes from this um, fear of rejection, this need for approval, uh, and this thirst for recognition. It's almost like this sense of, oh, maybe I'm not good enough, so I want to really cater to this group of people so that they accept me. Right? And then lastly, there is this idea of I am what I do. Right? This is like the burden of significance. Like, who am I? What is my life about? And so we sort of run towards that. I am what I do. Uh, me in particular, I have all of them. <laughs> and it just takes God uh, to keep reminding one of what one's true identity is. And we'll come back to this question later on in terms of where should our identity be anchored in? So I suspect you can already tell that all these forms of identity, they're just a burden. It's like a huge burden to keep trying to prove these things. Right? It just doesn't work. It's not sustainable. Eventually, we break down. So let's get back to Saul. So maybe Saul is wrestling with this. I'm not sure. But we know that Saul's reign begins. Right? And it begins with this military snapshot. Again, the attacks come from the east. It's dealt with. Saul actually wins a great victory, obviously, through God. Um, and, and, and then we go back to the problem of the Philistines. Right? Now, note that until this point, Saul has done nothing about the Philistines. Right? This is the instruction he has been given. This is what he was anointed for, but he really hasn't done anything. Jonathan, which we happen to know is a son later on, uh, actually attacks the outpost. In, in Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown, their hometown, 
and he defeats them. And Saul basically blows this trumpet, rallies the people, and the people gather around him. Now, obviously, at this time, the Philistines, knowing that uh, their army has been destroyed, they basically respond, right? And, and this is going to set up our next uh, sort of subheading, which is the problem of sin, specifically disobedience. So we have this Philistine threat that is coming. This is roughly covers verses 5 to 16, right? And I want to read a little bit of the scripture here so that we just have a sense of this threat. In verse 5, it says, And the Philistines mustered to fight Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped in Michmash, to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the Philistine threat is actually real, right? And when you look at it, right, Israel has 3,000 men. On the Philistine side, they have, I believe, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and then like an innumerable amount of soldiers, which is more of a, it's an exaggeration. Obviously not innumerable, but the idea is it's a lot. But let's just take Israel's 3,000 and compare it to the 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And what you see is that Israel is outnumbered by a factor of 12, right? Meaning for every one Israelite soldier, you have 12, a combination of either chariots or horsemen, but 12 of those. So obviously, they should be afraid. I would be afraid, right? It's like the, the threat is real. And so they're trembling, which is normal. But part of the issue here is their response, right? Having known God and seen some of what God has done, they just simply take off, like some running, hiding, just defecting. Like there is no seeking of God. There is no maybe turning to God for help, right? Now, they, they had seen a couple of things. They just saw what God did to the Ammonites from the east. They saw what God did with the Ark of the Covenant that the Philistines actually took, Right when they defeated the sons of Eli and the army back then, and they saw what God did with that, and they had to bring back that act trembling. But again, they just bolted for it. Again, understandably that they're afraid, but it's the, the action that we have to look at, right, and see that was there truly even any trust in God, any reliance on God there? And again, what we have to also look within us. And so Saul, knowing that the Philistine threat is real, seeing people were deserting him, seeing that Samuel had not come, he actually offers the burnt offering, right? And as he did that, Samuel comes, and Samuel basically asks him, what have you done? But before I even get to that, it feels like Saul offered the offering, and actually when seeing Samuel, he actually goes out to meet and greet him, almost like in confidence that, yes, everything is well, finally you're here. You don't see any sense of, maybe even a hint of remorse that, oh, I've done this thing I shouldn't have done, and here you come. You just see this, oh, yeah, here you are, Samuel, let's get to business. Now, we might think that, you know, if Saul truly knew what he did was wrong, maybe there would be some reticence to him going out, maybe him actually speaking to Samuel and, you know, preempting that with saying, okay, this is what was going on, and this is why I did this. But when Samuel questioned him, uh, Saul basically offers a number of things, which I want to read. Uh, in verse 11, it says, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash 
I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, there are a couple of things to note here. What you don't see is Saul even acknowledging or even owning that, yeah, I did something I shouldn't have done, something that God said I should do, or something that was reserved for you. What you see him offering uh, as sort of reasons, excuses we might call them. Now, they're true. The Philistine threat was there. They were deserters in that sense. Samuel had not shown up. But still, they are still excuses. And what we have to look at is that if Saul actually did those things truly out of this sense of I want God's guidance or I'm seeking God's favor, there would still be this hint of remorse. There would still be this acknowledgement of, yes, I have done what I shouldn't have done. Right? And so what do we do from here? How do we go from here? And even when Samuel pronounces judgment, we'll see later on. Like Saul basically says nothing. There's no repentance. He just basically moves on as if nothing were wrong. And those things begins to give you a hint of the posture of his heart. So even when he says he's seeking the favor of the Lord, it's like very interesting because he cloaks his excuses in this spirituality of, oh, I did this because I'm seeking God's favor. But if that were true, and you know what you did was wrong, there would be this repentance, this hint of remorse. right? And again, that's how we begin to see maybe some of Saul's posture. And so Samuel says this to him. And Samuel said to Saul, verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So again... I want you to see that the issue wasn't really in offering the burnt sacrifice and in, in doing that. It was really in disobeying God. It was the fact that he actually disobeyed God. And so when we look at this, we may ask the question, why is this even a big deal? Right? There's the Philistine threat. People were deserting. There's a war to fight. Like, What exactly was he supposed to do? Right, we might even say, you know, this is minor and an understandable error given the situation before him. And, and sometimes we might even say, you know what, he did nothing wrong. Like, sure, he offered the sacrifice. So what? Right? Quite frankly, he's trying to seek God's favor. That's why he did it. And, and those seem, how would I put it, reasonable. And we empathize with Saul. And I understand why we do that. And I do as well. <laughs> um, but this is where our rationalization breaks down. You see, Saul did disobey God. And again, there was no hint of remorse, no repentance. It was just, yes, I did this. And when that pronouncement of judgment came, there was, again, no repentance, no seeking of God's face on that. And, and, and again, we have to go back to this old saying that there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Right? What Saul did was basically... Disobedience, And again, we can't see the state of his heart, but, but we have clues as to what might be going on. So we are right to empathize with Saul, but, but because we are like Saul, but, but we empathize uh, maybe with the wrong things in him. You see, when life is good, um, it's easy to talk about trusting God. 
and having faith in God and relying on God, right? But it is when we sometimes face this difficult external pressures that the truth of what we believe actually comes out. And, and when they do, when those things that come out are not pleasant, the right move isn't to just go along. It is to turn back towards God. Right? That's always the right move. When those things come out of us and we say, that, Ugh, my character here was crazy. Or, Ugh, this was really wrong. Right? It isn't then to just like, okay, whatever. I don't want to feel bad. It's to actually turn to God and see that God is always there to accept us. So Samuel calls Saul's actions foolish. And I've said that in a sense we are like Saul, right? And so we have to look at this, like what actually makes that foolish, right? In Psalm 14 verse 1 and Psalm 53 verse 1, uh, the Bible says the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So the fool doesn't say with his mouth or in his mind, but he says in his heart that there is no God. You see, the, the, the real issue there is the state of the heart, right? That's why he says the fool stays in his heart, there is no God. The question then becomes, what does the fool look like? Because the fool doesn't look like what we think the fool looks like, right, in that sense. So the fool doesn't look like who or what we think he or she looks like. Why? Because it is the heart that reveals the fool, not the intellect, not the understanding, not the social status. See, what Saul did might not seem foolish, but truly disobeying God's commandment the definition of a fool. And to that end, we are all fools for that. Right? To that end, we, 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 we do sin and we do push God away. You see, sometimes it seems hard to obey God because it actually requires trusting in God. Because to obey God actually requires relying on Him. And, and so because we push against that, our nature pushes back against that, that's why often it can be difficult to simply just trust in him. He said the foolishness of disobedience and the wisdom of obedience isn't always clear with the circumstances we can see. Right? The circumstances don't always show us what is foolish or what is wise to do. So Saul had not waited for Samuel, and by extension, he had not waited for God. By extension, he had rejected God. And so this is how we often say with our own heart that there is no God through our actions, especially repeated actions, and especially actions where we show no hint of remorse nor repentance. And, and so we go to the subject of repentance. Saul hears Samuel's judgment. But it, I mean, from what is recorded, he does nothing. It's almost like, okay, sure, let's just go on. And, and let me read that scripture. Because if Saul's act were a mistake, or even if he acted out of unbelief, but he had the right heart posture, you would again expect this repentance or for him to seek to do better. But this is what verse 15 and 16 records. And Samuel arose, and this is after Samuel had pronounced judgment upon Saul. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Saul simply moved on. It was like Samuel pronounced judgment. Samuel talked about how his line would not be established forever, and Saul just moved on. Which again is chilling, right? It feels just very cold. Like you just mentioned you were seeking the favor of God. 
and there is this pronouncement of judgment, and you just simply moved on. It's almost like, okay, let's get back to business. So I don't know why Saul does that. Maybe he's still unsure of himself as king. Who knows? The threat of the Philistines is very real, right? We we would all be scared by that, I think. Um, But again, just no repentance, which is telling. And so the question we must ask here is that in our own lives, how much does repentance feature in our relationship with God and relationship with others? Right. Unless we are perfect, there will be plenty of opportunities to repent. And so do we truly take that seriously? And, and then to what degree is my heart hardened uh, towards my pet sins? You know, sins that I don't really consider, I say, oh my God, it's okay, you know, I sort of enjoy it. I don't really want to do anything about it. Right. To what degree is my heart hardened against those things? And so we move towards the end of the chapter uh, verses 17 to 23, and the Philistines are still here, right? They are still a problem. And it, it seems as if the situation is even more dire because, again, we talked about the, the numbers, 3,000 Israelites to the you know, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and then a ton of foot soldiers. But at this point in time, only 600 men are left with Saul, right? And so that factor goes up to 60, right? For each Israelite, if we're just looking at the chariots and the horsemen, you have 60 of the chariots and the horsemen. Again, we're talking about the foot soldiers. They're still there. So again, the problem is real. What do we do? From the geography of the text, it seems like the Israelites could actually see the Philistine camp and what was going on. That's why the, the, the author speaks about those three raiding parties that goes out, and they basically couldn't do anything, right? So even before the main battle, you see this Philistine incursion. They're going out. They're raiding things, and, and the army is just there. Moreover, they have no blacksmith. Right, and so due to that, and probably due to inflated prices, nobody has weapons. So that on the day of battle, the two people that actually have weapons is uh, Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son. And so you're thinking, what is going to happen? Where does this go? And the natural question we ask is, where is God in all of this? Like, has God forsaken his people? And sometimes in life, things are hard, and we ask that question as well. And it's okay to ask that question, especially with a heart that seeks to believe and to know God more. It's okay to question things and wrestle with what's going on. And, and so we, 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 we think to ourselves, what hope is there? What hope is there for me? Right? If I am like Saul and the children of Israel, and I do reject God every now and then, what hope is there to me? And so we come to uh, the fourth section, which talks about a coming king that God chooses. And so let me read uh, verses 13 to 14. Actually, before that, the situation we understand is very dreadful and dire, right? You have this Philistine army, and there's almost nothing the Israelites can do. They're just 600. And sometimes we're apt to think, oh, snap, this is the end of it. But we must always remember that God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign. And so even when a situation looks like the doing on the, or the handiwork of the Philistines, it is really God behind all of that. And what we will see in chapter 14 next week is how God will actually bring about a great victory, even in that dire situation. And the point of all of that is that the people of Israel continue to see that they can put their trust in God. Rather than have a king who would go before them and fight their battles, meaning they wanted kind of like a human savior, 
The real way to do things is to trust in God and rely on God. And we will see that more uh, in chapter 14 next week. So up until this point, Israel has failed because they, have, they keep on rejecting God. Right? The king they wanted, right, someone to go before them and fight their battles, they don't even believe in that much. So in a sense, the king has also failed. Right? And he also failed in disobeying God. And, and so we go back to Samuel's declaration of judgment to see what hope do we have? Because again, we are like Saul and the Israelites. So verse 13 says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, in this pronouncement of judgment, we see our ray of hope. Samuel says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. In Christian jargon, when we see that phrase, uh, a man after God's heart, we tend to attribute the merit to the man, almost as if the man esteems God highly. This is why he's a man after God's heart, and is his doing, right? Um, and there is truth to that in terms of, sure, but, but the person that is truly making the initiative, it is God. The, the literal translation, actually, is, is someone God has chosen, right, for his own purposes, right? So it's important, again, we keep saying that uh, even when we are pursuing hard after God, what is behind that is God taking the initiative to draw us to himself, right? And, and so uh, the emphasis here is that even though the people have sought for themselves a king, God gave them a man after their heart, but now God is going to choose a man right, that he has set his own heart upon. And, and so God will choose for himself a prince over his people. And in the immediate context, that points to David, which we will meet in chapter 16. And maybe in some sense, actually, Jonathan is an interesting candidate because when you look at his story throughout the book, he's actually one of the few that nothing negative was said about him. And uh, the, the author actually sets up this contrast between Saul, his father, and Jonathan. And what you see is actually Jonathan, through his actions, truly trusts God. We see that in chapter 14 uh, again. But in the immediate context, David is the fulfillment of that promise. But, but the true fulfillment of that is Christ. Right? Because we know David is going to fail as well. He's also not going to trust God. He's even going to fail his people. Right, so the true fulfillment of that is Christ Jesus, the greater and better Israel. You see, David's greater son that will come, and David's Lord. And, and so for me and you who consistently reject God, who are fools for disobeying God, you see, where then is our hope? Our hope is in Christ Jesus, right? The one who will come and be both high priest and the lamb, the offering that will redeem us back to Christ. Right? Rather than rely on the arm of flesh or seek a God or a king in our own image where we show the depths of our own unbelief, right? we are to turn to God. We are to rely on him, not only for salvation, but for life, for everyday living. Right? So we show ourselves as fools when we anchor our identity in what we have or what we possess. When we anchor our identity in what people say about us, 
when we anchor our identity in what we are currently doing, what gives us that significance, right? We often make excuses for our sins. We rationalize things rather than turn to God. Right? So that no matter what we're doing, we can always turn to him. And so God, seeing that we have no hope in ourselves, sent forth Christ Jesus to die for me and you, right? As a propitiation of our sin, so that in that way, uh, our path, there is a reconciliation between God and man. So this is the extent to which God will go for me and you, right? And so I want to talk about two quick implications and then we'll wrap up. Because when we read this story and we identify with Saul and the Israelites and our rejection and pushing away of God, when we identify with the fact that we are the fools who say in our hearts, not with our lips, that there is no God, which means through our repeated actions and our pattern of life, we reject God. What then can we take from this? You see, when we have... When we see that unbelief, not relying on God, has led to the crumbling of the crown. Because from here on, we start seeing this destabilization of the kingdom, right? And of Saul's reign, and we see in chapter 15 when he's finally rejected. We know that our only hope lies in God. So what can we do? Um, implication one, please accept God's love for you. Accept God's invitation into his family. Earlier on, I spoke about identity and how we can anchor identities in different things. What then should we anchor identity in if we're in the family of God? I believe the answer is this. This is you. We, you are a beloved child of God. That's your identity. You are a beloved child of God. Right? Meditate on this, feast on this. If perhaps you do not believe in Christ, uh, uh, speak to someone beside you, you know, speak to Tim. <laughs> um, and just speak to anyone in the church, really, and, and come to understand that God wants you in his family, that the cross of Christ is the greatest expression of love. What might seem like the greatest defeat, in a sense, is actually the greatest triumph. For us, And that is the greatest expression of God's love. And so if you're a believer, feast on these things. Right? Get into the word of God. Seek those passages that remind you of God's invitation to you so that you know that you are a beloved child of God. Now, I'm not advocating you irrationally just take out a text out of context and apply it to yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that we should feast on scripture, seeing the faithfulness of God, seeing the deliberate hand of God. And seeing what that means for us. Uh, for, for me in particular, uh, um, there are a couple of scriptures that stand out. Uh, one is Psalm 139. Uh, it's a beautiful psalm to meditate on, maybe memorize and just do work on often. Uh, another for me is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Uh, it has a way of just reminding me of where everything goes, what the purpose of everything is, where we're going. And if you like poetry, uh, I actually think Judge Herbert's Love, uh, Love 3, is, is a good one to also just reflect on. Right? That again reminds you of who God is. And so the first implication is please accept God's love for you. Uh, the second is repentance. Right? We, the Christian life is this ongoing struggle with sin. Right? We are going to fall on the side of eternity, make mistakes. And so because of that, repentance has to be an integral part of our lives. Right? We have to be able to go to God 
and speak to him about our issues and things we struggle with, right? And when faced with sin, let us have a heart that sees sin for what it is, a rejection of God, right? And let us also know in accepting God's love for us, we know the door is open through the sacrifice of Christ to always come back to God. There is this quote by Tim Keller that is very helpful. It says, the gospel of Christianity is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever did believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever did hope. When we hold those two things together, we, we do know that we are sinful and we make mistakes and we do wrong things. But we also understand that in Christ Jesus, in him, in his family, we are more loved and accepted than we can ever even dare hope. This gives us the, the freedom to be able to come to God. Like no matter where we are, no matter how far gone we might think, right? We are never too far gone from God. We are never too dirty for God. So please, accepting God's love for you and repentance, let's make that a way of life. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, your mercy, um, for your word. And, and sure, certain things here are hard. And us seeing ourselves uh, where we are, uh, we, we struggle, uh, we often reject you. There is much unbelief in my heart. Uh, God, help us. Help us to truly rely on you, to trust in you, to believe you, to accept your love for us. Uh, help us to wear this world loosely, uh, to carry ourselves lightly so that our identity is anchored in the fact that we are a beloved child of God, so that we do not have to perform and, and, and try to earn approval, but that we are truly reliant on you. And, and so, God, we pray that even as we go ahead and live our lives, that you give us the strength and the courage to follow you, to obey you, and, and to praise you forevermore. May your name be glorified in all things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>